You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thanks, Mark, and um, thanks to Eve for the introduction and to everybody for um, the great welcome in the Hub. Um, I suppose the, this, the conversation the, with, the, with the fellow, one of the things that prompts is a, the idea of a, you know, looking across a career and looking across ideas. So in thinking about this, I've been thinking about exactly that and how I got to where I am. Um, it, it's a long story, so I won't give it all of you. Um, but I suppose the things that really, um, that struck me about it and why I work in the way I work is that um, partly I suppose it is that personal story of having grown up in the centre of Balmina um, during the Troubles. And I grew up in, in a council house in the centre of the town and my parents didn't go to university. And this is significant, I think, because for me for a very long time, education was about learning the rules. It was about trying to figure out what it was that I needed to know that all of these other people had and that they understood. And I went to St Andrews and it was, it, that continued for a, a long time. It was about fitting in. It was about being seen as equal to or, you know, to, to, to be part of something. And so that kind of approach to education, which is, um, I think is still there, I suppose, in some ways in that need to pass exams, the need to to do things, it, it made me um, a cautious, in some ways, historian and somebody who, um, yeah, wanted to figure out what it, what it was I needed to know so that I wouldn't be caught out, so that I had the language that was the language of the academic and the knowledge of the academic. And so I think in some ways this project or the work I'm doing now is part of a long journey away from that. But it's taken a long time. Um, it takes, because it can, I think, if you are a nervous person who's lacking in confidence and doesn't feel, well, I'm going to tell them and I'm going to show them that all of it is about hoping that they think that I'm good enough. And so this kind of long process towards finding a different language, finding a different way to look at things, thinking that my own experience was actually of value and not something that needed to be <coughs> hidden, um, that, and hidden behind an objectivity or a certain academic language, that, that um, I suppose I would say the last, the last part of my career has been very much about that and the enjoyment and the um, feeling much more relaxed about what those rules might be, about testing the rules across disciplines, about looking at my own discipline of history and wondering, was it always adequate? Was it always, um, you know, did it, did it create the, the right stories? And so the sensory element, um, I work on, as Eve said, on cultural memory. And so, I wanted to find a different memory bank. That was really the thing. After I finished this long period of looking at the Easter Rising and commemoration, I wanted to move away from that. My interest had always been very on the political, you know, the state, the official memory, and I wanted to find those other 
more elusive memories and a different, you know, to think, well, they, they're located somewhere differently. And fundamental to that really was my kind of, the importance of the whole body, that we remember with our whole bodies and not just our minds. And I read Arthur Kleinman's work, and he's huge in, he's a psychotherapist and anthropologist, and he firmly believed that if we listen to the patient, so he looked at chronic illness, if we listen to the patient and get them to narrate their illness, we'll understand the society they live in better, not just their illness, but the society. And that for me was really important. I thought if we listen to people who have lived through conflict and get them to narrate it in a different way and think about the felt sense of that, then, then that opens up this whole other way. It just opens up a whole other way to understand memory. And so the sensory approach was because it's with our senses that we encounter the world, that we bring it in. Only through that, through the, what we see, what we hear, all of those multiple sensory ways in which we encounter the world and then in which we absorb it, interpret it, understand it, create meaning. So I thought, well, that's, that seems like a really interesting way to approach this. And then sensory history itself has been around for a long time. Um, and particularly somebody like Alain Corbin, who's, who worked in French history and looked at the significance of, for example, the sound of bells in French villages in the 19th century. And what that told us about social order, what it told us about the place of religion in the society, the way in which people understood time. Um, and then the, the sounds that, over, that were overtaking that, that were overwhelming it, the encroaching of modernity. And so that if we listen carefully, and if we, if we think about smell, and the way in which smell, there's, there's some really interesting work done on the way in which it is used to denigrate people. It's seen as a, an uncivilized sense. There's something animal about it. And so it's a way that's used to characterize people um, who are othered and, and seen as lesser. And so I, got, I was really interested in that. I was really interested in the way in which you could use sensory history to talk about inequality. And I thought, well, that's, a, that's also, that's another little piece of the puzzle. That will help me to tell a complicated story. Um, and, and, so, <laughs> and so I began then <laughs> with my developing my own methodology because actually one of the things about sensory history so far is that it hasn't really been used in terms of interviewing people. It's been used by psychologists, it's been used by other practitioners, but historians haven't really used it to collect information in the present. And so that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, can I just take you up on that one? Because, I mean, I work on historical material myself on medieval art, and actually I've been, from talking to you, I've been looking at sources again to, to see what are the possibilities for even looking at the Middle Ages, because there is material there, and it is a different way of looking at things. Um, but we are used to certain types of approaches, so the archive, written documents, uh, maybe photographs, other types of sources, but when you get into trying to explore 
the senses and sensory perception. I presume there are major methodological challenges to doing this. So how do you actually go about reconstructing a sensory history? And are there particular challenges for doing that for, the, for Northern Ireland and the Troubles? So uh, I suppose reconstructing is, is a word I might <laughs> hesitate over. So there isn't an attempt to, because you can't. You can't repeat it. You can't, even if we try to recreate the sound of helicopters, we can't recreate the, the sensation of being in a particular place at a certain point and, and hearing them. And so, so sensory historians are very clear that they're not trying to recreate. They're trying to use the senses. And actually, Mark Smith, who's a really important figure in, in that area, talks about the habit of sensory history as opposed to the discipline. So it's about an awareness. Um, now, and some of it becomes very technical and theoretical, but ultimately it is reading sometimes older um, texts differently. And, and in fact, I think in literature, um, this, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I think it's, it's bringing it into the history, which is now having a real moment, I think, the history of uh, the senses, of emotion, of experience. This is really where historians are most kind of excited in terms of looking at traditional archives anew, looking for what isn't there trying to understand and we've, we've heard I've heard this even at the coffee mornings in the half the work that's being done by postgraduate students here um, reading between the lines um, and so looking <coughs> for something else in terms of um, yeah so I don't you know it, it's radical and it isn't radical in some ways it's so obvious it's amazing we haven't done it before um, uh, so it's, it's about reading differently. Um, in terms of doing it for the troubles, it's, uh, yes, uh, are there difficulties? There were certain things I had to think about. So in terms of the methodology, I had, uh, because of where I work and their nervousness around, uh, uh, quite rightly actually, very strict ethic, ethical process, because often people I'm in a department of social science and and humanities and so often um, my colleagues are working with vulnerable people and so the ethical process is very clear on how you you know what consent means and has the person do they really understand and can they give their consent and these these kinds of things but I so I had to think a lot about that and about the vulnerability potential vulnerability of people I interview. So just to clarify here yeah. as well so you're saying like that <clears throat> interviews then yeah. are a key Sorry, yeah. part of, yeah. of the way you do things. So I suppose more traditionally we associate the historian with, with documents and other more sort of you know tactile sources that we can put our hands on. But for you talking to people is a key part of the, the methodology of doing a sensory history. It is. And I, I mean I know what you mean that <coughs> traditionally I mean I think oral history though now has really really come into its own I don't think there are any people who see it as a um, an unconventional approach anymore but but you're right so so I wanted to because I wanted to tell a different story I knew I needed to find different sources 
and the, the sensory approach was a way to do that. I did sit in the Linen Hall Library and crony and do the, you know, look through material, look at trying to find that. But I actually also then realised that I could collect my own archive and that I could talk to people, mostly individually, but sometimes in groups. Um, and that actually the process is a very simple one. <laughs> um, I really, I sit down with people and I say, I put on, on a, a recorder exactly like that. And I say, so I'm interested in what it was like for you, what was happening around you, not the big news stories, but in your life. And so I say to them, we'll go through each sense, but you're in charge of the, the process. And often I'll begin with sight. And I'll say, so if I say sight, what comes up for you? And everybody starts somewhere different. And it's kind of, it's, and then you're off. Then they talk. And, and sometimes I bring them back to the senses, but very often I just, because what people really get very quickly is that it's about the sensations. So they are trying to tune into the sensation of being them at a particular moment. And you, how structured are you in your, your approach to that? I mean, do you just let them talk or do you go in with a template? Or, and how do you then, I suppose one of the things you get with historians is an attempt you know, to sort of control the, the, the use of sources and so in this case how, do you just decide well this is going to be more free form you're going to take it from where they are and what they say and let that run or do you attempt to have a template to have a structure when you go in or do you just go in and let people talk? I just go in and let people talk and that was quite difficult to begin with um, I kind of you know at first I thought is this really what I'm going <laughs> to do and I don't know what I'll get but the first two interviews when I first started I was thinking of doing something on prisons um, and former prisoners but partly because in a in a kind of a war a conflict situation uh, and this very good work has been done on the American Civil War and the, the Russian Revolution um, senses are really heightened that it's really important to get um, people really understand that their senses are giving them really important information so you have this, there's an alertness about it. And in some ways it's similar in prisons. Um, because and very often if you can't see then your other senses, you, so you'll, you're judging, you're using sound for distance and all of those kinds of things. And so one of the first people I interviewed was a guy, and it, very similar to a lot of people I've spoke, spoken to, said that he didn't really have anything interesting to say. He said, you know, I had a pretty uneventful troubles and I said, yeah, so did I, but I didn't spend, you know, eight years in prison. <laughs> um, and, but he, in that conversation, he talked about silence coming into his cell at night when the doors were closed. And he said, I used to imagine it coming in as if it was water. It would just come in through the door as soon as they, you know, they'd go from pandemonium. He said, I always imagined that. I imagined the silence was coming in like water. And I remember just in that moment thinking, this is going to be amazing because I have no idea what people are going to tell me. And they've maybe ne he's maybe never said that out loud before. 
And so that's what I got. Sometimes there were long periods of people not saying anything that necessarily, when I hear it back, I think, oh, I didn't, I missed that. I missed the tone of that. I missed, you know, but even in the moments, almost, I would say every single interview, there's a moment where I just sit and think, thank you, <laughs> thank you, because that is just stunning. And only that person would have put it like that because it comes so deeply from their experience. So in, in doing this type of work in relation to the, the Troubles in Northern Ireland, there's bound to be particular difficulties. So you walk into the room and you're Rasheen Higgins, <laughs> and so there are immediately associations. Did you find that a problem? Or were you able to, to go across uh, you know, different types of people, to people of different backgrounds? Or were there difficulties, or did, was that something that didn't cause major problems? Do you know, it didn't, uh, and I, I'm like, you know, I thought, I thought it would. Um, and I suppose even with this project itself, even my own experience has always been that my name told people something about me, whether I wanted to tell them or not. Um, and, and so, yes, I did. I thought there would be, that people would maybe think that I had an agenda or that I wanted to hear certain things. And I haven't lived, um, I left when I was 18 and then I, I lived, I've lived in Scotland and England and in Dublin for 10 years, but not back there apart from brief periods. And so I think I'm the one who was, um, who maybe haven't moved on as much as they had. I didn't find it a barrier. I wanted to interview um, members of, or some you know, at least one person from the Orange Order because I was trying to get a range of experiences. And so I was talking to this guy who had done work with them and he also had a, a, a you know, what you would perceive as a Catholic name. And I said to him, I don't know if they'll talk to me. I don't know if they'll talk to somebody called Roisin Higgins. And he said, your religion isn't the problem, but I don't think they'll want to talk to a woman. Um, and so... <laughs> I got those. I didn't. Um, I did. I didn't speak to anybody in the Orange Order, but I did speak to people about. I really wanted somebody to describe the twelfth of July to me, because <laughs> it's such a sensory thing, and so many people I interviewed had negative. You know, people from Protestant backgrounds. You know, they didn't like the twelfth. It's like I'm definitely. I'm meeting a very specific demographic if I can't find somebody who really enjoyed the 12th of July, whenever they, and then I did, I did in Derry, there was a woman, and I said to her, would you mind? I feel like this is something that, if I'm going to write about this place, I need somebody to talk to me about what that was like. Um, so sometimes I did, I kind of, I, had, I suppose there were some things where I thought that's missing. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of... Um, I don't know. I suppose you don't. I don't. I don't know how different would have been, it would have been if it had been somebody else. What I made my peace with it took a while. The fact that it wasn't somebody else, it was me. So the that's that's the project, you know. Yeah. Um, one of the most fascinating books I've I've read on is a book called Passing the Time in Ballymanone by by Henry Glassie, who's a folklorist, and uh, it's written about uh, Fermanagh, and uh, but. In order to write this book, he spent two years living with the community he was writing about. And his idea was that you have to write about people from where they are out rather than from the outside in, which I think is kind of what you're doing. But one of the things that struck me about that was the, the level of personal commitment 
that Glassie had to make to research and write that book on the terms that he wanted to do it. So he lived with these people for two full years before he thought he was qualified to write about them. So he wasn't prepared to come in, collect folklore, uh, do his academic analysis and then write about it. He wanted to live their lives to a certain extent and, and write, from, as he put it, from where they were out. Do you find that doing this kind of work then involves a, a deeper level of, of personal commitment and maybe even personal change than you would get from doing more traditional history? It's certainly very personal. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, and yes, I think the process, because I got the Libra Hume, I was able to spend a year in Belfast. I didn't do the full two years, but <laughs> I'd done a bit of groundwork, I suppose, in the years before. But the, I spent, so I spent a year, but I wasn't living in one community. Um, and um, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange process for me. It, and, and one of the most important things I had to learn to do was to let go of any expectation to let go of the sense that there would be these specific outputs, that I would meet these targets, that I would interview five people from this group and six people from this, and that I would hit all these demographics and that everybody would be delighted then when they'd see, yes, yes, very good, 50% Catholic, 50% Protestant, 50% men, 50% women, and it would be one of those kinds of... Um, and that everybody, yes, that, that it would work like that. And it didn't work like that because not everybody wants to talk. And, and, and sometimes people do want to talk and you already have them on your list <laughs> ticked off. It's like, I didn't say to anybody, no, I'm sorry. I'm not. It's like, if you want to talk to me, I'll, I'll happily, happily um, listen to you. And so the biggest, I think the people who were interviewed, for some of them, it was a really... Some people emailed afterwards and said they felt lighter. They just felt. And some people felt exhilarated by the experience of just talking, I suppose, of the acknowledgement that what they've gone through. Because one of the things I really wanted to capture was the abnormality of it. And so many people talk about the, the things that became normal. There was when I interviewed... Um, a former member of the RUC and he talked about checking under his car every morning and, and how he would pretend to drop his keys um, because you know he, he didn't want everybody around to know and he'd never put uh, you know never put his uniform on the washing line outside so this kind of concealed existence and, and as he was talking to me and he was minimising all of it you know and I could just feel the stress I, I just felt so stressed listening to it, and I said to him, it sounds very stressful, and he said, well, you know, I suppose the abnormal became normal, and he, he landed on that phrase a few times through the interview, it, that's, he's, he's kind of settled himself with that, and actually quite a lot of people, in, in terms of their composure and in the way in which they compose the story, that abnormal becoming normal was quite a, a common um, element in it. So some people felt exhilarated, some felt um, exhausted. And I could, I, I interviewed one guy in his house and I was there for a long time and he got emotional in the middle and we walked around his garden and he showed me, he talked to me through the garden <laughs> and we went back in and he said he was ready 
go again. And at the end of it, he said, that's it, I'm done. And he was done, he was exhausted. So their experiences were different. And mine, there's no doubt it changed me. That act of listening changed me. It made me much more open. And that made me a different interviewer. I had no expectation. I just listened. And yeah, it was great. That was a really liberating thing to do. And it just opened up a kind of a, because it's a very human connection. I, I mean, all of stories are anyway, but there's something about that sensory experience when people take you into something that is so personal to them, their reaction in that moment or their feeling or the, the smell of their mother's cooking as they, they open the front gate. Um, those kinds of things, there's something about that that creates a real connection between two people. And that changed me, no doubt. That's interesting, you used the word liberation, because I remember a retired colleague, uh, Kieran Brady, who's an early modern historian here, and I remember him giving a talk one time, talking about himself and, and history. And he was saying for him it was about liberation, it was about you know, claiming uh, the past himself. By, by doing it himself, and that uh, sort of is liberating from enforced narratives or given narratives, and uh, that's the, that's what he saw as doing history was. That's fascinating. You must have a talk with, with yeah. Kieran. Um, so, I mean, you're collating material now. You're thinking about it. You're you're writing. Um, what would you say at this stage is are the most important things? you will add to our understanding of the Troubles, of Northern Ireland, of Irish history, of Northern Ireland history. Would you say the most significant things for you so far to, to come out of this uh, type of research? I mean, I would say the most important thing is that process. Um, and so it's about what becomes central to the story um, and about acknowledging, a, um, I suppose, a historical landscape in which many people were desensitised. Um, we know that the um, prescriptions for tranquilizers <coughs> were very high, particularly among women. Um, so that kind of emotional burden that women carried, and men, um, and they, you know, often were less likely to go to the doctor, and so we see different forms of um, of, of addiction um, and so it's to it's to bring that into the centre of the history so that it isn't separately written about in terms of um, you know those personal experiences of the troubles and then the history is actually the political history it's about why Sunningdale failed or you know these kinds of things that actually it's about writing about conflict that um that understands that to live in proximity to it, to live in a society that is, um, you know, that, that is dysfunctional, that that is deforming, and to have a sense of how people worked through that and how they now remember it. So I think the process itself to put human beings back into a story in which often they were dehumanised um, and to put the sensory back into a landscape that was often desensitised. I think they're important things to do. And once you bring human beings back into the story, I, I had this image um, 
while I was meeting people of, of the kind of history I wanted to write, I, I interviewed um, two people who, were, who, who are blind and two who are deaf, and particularly for those who are blind, when trains were disrupted, when you know, bomb scares, those kinds of things, it was particularly difficult for them. And I, I hadn't thought about that before. It, I mean, amazingly, I hadn't thought. And so I wanted to write a history. I just, I just had this image of all of these people, all sharing something and living in this place at a particular time, but each one of them having these kinds of things that they had to negotiate. And I just wanted to bring them into our awareness, you know. I can't do, I can't do all of it, obviously everybody, but that multitude of experiences, I just wanted that to be much more part of the story. You mentioned there's a writing new history. <laughs> Does doing this type of history though present challenges to our traditional ways of communicating, so the text, the monograph, the article. I mean, does this sort of, of uh, history cry out for doing other types of communications? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, Eve mentioned my grant from the AHRC, and that's a networking grant. And that is an acknowledgement that if we want to understand, if it's to understand the impact of the society on the body, and that that actually is beyond a single discipline. And so much of what the work of that network has been doing is it's been looking at different ways of representing conflict. And not just the troubles, but conflict more generally. And I feel very much, I, I mean, I will write a book and articles and, because that's what I do. Uh, <laughs> and that's what I want to do. But I also feel that, you know, for example, the, the people I've interviewed who are deaf and I needed a translator, and they didn't use verbal language. As soon as that's translated into something, into a verbal form, into a textual form, so much is lost. And also they, you know, for the person who is blind, um, it, it's, I mean, I don't want to make it, um, I, I suppose interviewing people like that made me think about how limited my own, I am, and the way in which we maybe we communicate, and sort of find different ways to communicate something in a multi-sensory way, and in a much more emotional way maybe. Yeah, I think it's really, really important. I, I think it's really, I am actually, even though I'm working across disciplines, I'm still quite a tribal person, <laughs> funnily enough, given where I'm from, but the, um, I'm still a historian. I want historians to be involved in these things. I think it's really important that we are. And um, so it's, yeah, I, I want to be having lots of conversations and for history to be in there in the middle of the mix. Thank you, Roshi. And thank you for your insights on your work which I think is uh, really really important and interesting and um, and thank you to all of you for uh, joining in the, the discussion and Roshin obviously is here now for, for as a fellow for a while longer so there will be other opportunities for people to uh, to make contact so uh, thank you again and thank all of you.